taking the party out of politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it could be working, and what we might be able to do about it. In season one, we took a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. In season two, we took a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected, and then trying to do a good job. Now this is season three. In season three, we're going to be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. We'll be using our understanding of what bits of our political system aren't working, and why they aren't working, to explore ways in which we might be able to change things around a bit, to make it all work a bit better. Importantly, whilst we'll be sharing our ideas, we'll also be sharing some of the best of your ideas about how to make things work a bit better. Welcome to episode 29 of Taking the Party Out of Politics. Today we're going to continue our look at how we solve some of the big challenges facing us and our political system. Yes, that's right, we've spent the past year or so detailing the problems. But now we're going to take our understanding of the problems, our understanding of why things aren't working as well as they should be working, and we're going to start to bring together some of the best ways in which we could change things. And it is about changing things, tweaking things, adjusting things. It isn't about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are many good things in our political system, and we should keep the good things. But we shouldn't be overawed by the good things. We should acknowledge where there are shortcomings, and we should work out how to fix them. Today, we're going to continue that process by looking at the idea of citizen scrutiny. In our last episode, we reminded ourselves that the starting point is that we should be better engaged as voters and as citizens. This is really a baseline. Beyond this, there are three main aspects of a different way of using our existing systems. First, we need to have a system which takes the electoral pressure out of what's called the wicked issues, and which might even have implications beyond that. That's what we looked at last time. That's called citizens' assemblies. Second, we should take every opportunity to share the best ideas. And third, we need to have a system which takes the political party pressure out of checking the quality of what's going on. Now this is what we're going to look at today. Taken together, we might call these three elements a citizen democracy to sit alongside our representative democracy. One, taking the electoral pressure out of the wicked issues. Two, ensuring that we share the best ideas. And three, taking the political party pressure out of checking the quality of what's going on. Our last time, we explored the idea of citizens' assemblies, a way of getting a group of about 100 citizens carefully selected so that they represent the needs, backgrounds, perspectives and interests of us all to learn about some of the difficult, challenging issues which we face. Climate change, care for the elderly and vulnerable, defence budgets, education. There are many challenging issues. And collectively, because our elected representatives aren't getting to grips with doing anything about them, collectively, these challenging issues are referred to as the wicked issues. Well, building on that idea, 
Today we're going to look at the third element of our citizen democracy, the idea of citizen scrutiny. And what it boils down to is this, removing the logical inconsistency of political parties being the ones who check up on themselves. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we stop electing and start selecting. We use citizen scrutiny. It's the second part of the answer about how we can change the way the system operates. Randomly, but representatively, from an agreed pool, we stop electing and we start selecting. Now, this is not the same as a citizen's assembly. The citizen's assembly meets for a particular purpose, to unpick a particular problem, to look at the evidence and to provide guidance, advice and recommendations, perhaps even binding recommendations to the government. The citizen's assembly is where new laws might start, or at least start to come together. In this instance, though, this is about having a different group of citizens. In this instance, the task is not to come up with new ideas. The task here is to take on one of the roles which is currently being performed by our elected representatives. Except that, as we've seen, it's not being performed very well by our elected representatives, even though some attempts to improve it have already been made. And although it's sometimes performed well by investigative journalism, it's not really appropriate that it should be simply left up to private funding, that is, the private owners of our media. It's not appropriate that private media should decide what should be followed up, what's important and what is newsworthy. The task is to take the scrutiny role out of the hands of MPs, at least in part. Citizen scrutiny is where we check on the quality of the work which our government and our ministers are doing. Now, Let's think about this. It's funny how the word unelected has become almost a derogatory term. It's as though there's something precious about elected government. Now, of course, there is something very precious about elected government, in theory, as long as the electoral process actually gives us something responsive and representative and functional. But as we've seen, the way in which the current system works isn't really delivering on this. And as such, there isn't anything magical about having a non-functioning elected government. What would be magical would be if our government represented us, if it were responsive to our needs, and if it delivered. In fact, it's not the elected bit which is so important, it's the representative bit and the delivery bit. Now then, can you think of any other perfectly well-operating part of our society which depends on good representation but not on election? Well, I can. It's called our jury system. We want the application of justice in our society to be fair, to deliver justice as far as that is possible within the Byzantine complexities of the legal system, and to do so in a way which represents our needs for the three traditional facets of punishment. That's deterrence, retribution and rehabilitation and possibly also an additional facet, reconciliation through restorative justice. And how do we do that? Well, we have a system where anyone in our society might be called upon to represent all of us as a member of a jury, perhaps for a day, perhaps for a week, 
perhaps for longer in a particularly complex case, for example. Members of a jury aren't elected, they're selected. And this is great. We get good members of our society to represent all of us. It's not a problem that they're not elected. The only important considerations are that they are good people, that they're going to do their best on our behalf, and that they have nothing to gain from their involvement in the jury system or in a particular trial. For example, we wouldn't have a brother of the defendant on the jury, or a brother of the victim for that matter. In fact, to give another example of a situation in which unelected, responsible members of the public are used and valued, you've probably heard of the term ombudsman. Now, ombudsman is a word which was borrowed from Swedish, where it means representative, and ultimately it derives from Old Norse words, umboth, commission, and mather, man. Sweden became the first country to appoint an independent official known as an ombudsman to investigate complaints against government officials and agencies. Since then, other countries, such as Finland, Denmark, New Zealand, as well as some US states, have appointed similar officials. We use them in the UK. The word also designates a person who reviews complaints against an organisation, such as a school or a hospital, or to someone who enforces standards of journalistic ethics at a newspaper. So let's not get all hot under the collar just because we're suggesting that we might use unelected people. Because, in fact, it's often the elected people who are more at risk of being biased. The process of getting elected is so involved that it's the elected representatives who end up being less independent. They end up beholden to a party system because that party system got them elected. And it will get them re-elected, if at all possible. And it will have an ongoing huge influence on their entire career, at least while they're in politics. In fact, they end up being less representative of us exactly because they are elected. A slightly longer answer to the reason behind today's issue, then, is stop requiring MPs to do so much. They're overworked, and as a result, they're inefficient. Most of them really try their bests, but they're trying to do too much to do any of their responsibilities really, really well. Let them focus on just two full-time roles local representation, and calling the executive to account in the House of Commons. Let most of the legislative scrutiny function be carried out by a dedicated team, and free up the MPs to use the output of that scrutiny function to call the executive to account. Now, thousands of years ago, the Greek philosopher Plato had a sort of a similar idea. In one of his most famous books, The Republic, Plato suggests that the government of the Republic should be carried out by what he called guardians. Now, these guardians were to be raised from birth to be good at government. They were to want for nothing, but they were also not to be able to benefit from being in power. They couldn't make money or profit from it in any way. They lived just to provide good government. Quote, The guardians were not to have houses or lands or any other property. Their pay was to be their food which they were to receive from the other citizens, and they were to have no private expenses, for we intended them to preserve their true character of guardians. Unquote. Now, that isn't exactly the plan here. We're not talking about people being raised from birth to be guardians. We're not talking about people not being able to own their own house. 
But we are talking about a system which pays the members of the citizen scrutiny system well enough that they don't need to take bribes, and which pays well enough that good people will want to do it as a public service, and which tries to take them at a point in their career where they don't have anything to gain by setting up private deals. So, most of us probably don't really know what scrutiny committees actually are. Let's take a moment and make sure that we understand exactly what we're talking about. So, scrutiny committees, sometimes called public bill committees, scrutiny committees are supposed to call the executive to account. The executive, that's the government and the ministers. At the moment, however, the executive is only held to account by Parliament. And even then, not all the time, and not very effectively. Ministers currently are not required to attend scrutiny committees. This could easily be made a requirement, or at the very least an expectation which could not be avoided. A non-party political scrutiny process could hold the executive to account, not for party political reasons, but as representatives of the country and of the people. This scrutiny process could help not just with the scrutiny of proposed legislation, but also with the development of the legislation itself. If it does not involve party political point scoring, and if it does not constitute a method of gaining a leg up to the executive, then existing experience and understanding, for example, doctors scrutinising health legislation, teachers scrutinising education legislation, well, that could also be focused to improve the quality of scrutiny even further. This scrutiny process could also engage with likely relevant stakeholders to consult, to build a consensus, to test plans, to look at likely pitfalls or unintended consequences. In other words, it could avoid poorly made legislation and policy being made in haste. Now, all of this is possible now. It just doesn't happen because of the muddying of the waters between the executive and the legislative. So if a member of the legislative, that's the Houses of Parliament, an MP, if a member of the legislative is also a member of a political party, and they almost all are, then anything you do in scrutinising legislation or policy has party implications, as well as political implications. Either the party in government is your party, or you're part of the opposition. As such, either you're motivated through self-interest or by the party whips to support the government, perhaps uncritically, or you're motivated through competition with the party which forms the government to block everything, to criticise everything, to score party political points. So what would a dedicated citizen scrutiny team look like? Well, you may have guessed from what I've already said that part of the model is based on jury service. Not exactly jury service, but drawing upon that idea of good members of the public with nothing to gain by their involvement, representing us all. We can't all drop everything and get stuck into a scrutiny committee. The country and the economy would grind to a halt. But bringing in some educated, intelligent, non-specialist people, we could get better scrutiny. By supporting these people in the processes which they use, we could even get better scrutiny. Why non-specialist? Well, there's a lot of evidence that focused specialists actually make poorer judgment than well-informed generalists, particularly when asked to make projections about the future. Now, it's not that specialists are useless. 
quite the contrary. Taken together, compared and considered properly, the advice and insight from specialists is invaluable. But any one specialist has their own career and their own, perhaps even unconscious, prejudices or presumptions. And these prejudices and presumptions about the way their particular bit of the world works can, very often, make them a little bit blind to the bigger picture. To make the point, even if a little uncharitably, a particular specialist might have a particular academic point to make, a pet theory, for example. It might be something that a professor has cherished for years, even decades. It might be right, and it might be wrong. It probably makes them a really good educator and researcher, but it probably also makes them a poor advisor on government policy. Or to be absolutely fair, it's probably never a good idea to use just one advisor. Governments should listen to many different advisors and perspectives. Specialist advice should definitely be taken from a range of specialists in the context of a lot of careful thinking and consideration of other research. Then a group of informed representatives can share the aggregated combination of all that specialist advice. They can use that perspective to scrutinise government policy and government decision-making. Our informed representatives would have nothing to gain. They have no career in a particular field, no reputation to uphold, no point to prove. They would only be charged with making the best possible assessment on the basis of as much information as is available at the time. So what would a jury service model for legislative scrutiny look like in operation? Well, good question. Let's explore a sort of outline role description and see how that feels. A jury service model for the legislative scrutiny branch of government, perhaps it would be somebody selected for a five-year term, perhaps renewable once. Is that the right length of time? Is that too long? It's about the same time as a government, so maybe that's the right thing. If you are selected, you'd be given six months' notice to prepare yourself, for example, to give notice to your current employer. Perhaps it would be a good idea to be selected about halfway through the term of a fixed-term parliament. That way you wouldn't be starting at the same term as a new parliament. Perhaps you'd be paid the sort of salary which would attract good people without being outrageous. A good income for anyone to feel they were valued. Perhaps something like the basic salary for an MP, which is about two and a half times the average London salary, with free accommodation. And then... If you were that sort of person that would be up for that sort of thing, you would put yourself on the list of people who are ready to volunteer for this role. So you wouldn't be able to just choose to do the role, but you'd make yourself available. Now, what makes you eligible to be on the list? Well, this is open to discussion, of course. You may have your thoughts. Perhaps you could send us some ideas. But here are some suggestions. Perhaps you would need to be informed, be reasonably up to date, It might involve regularly checking out information on a fact-checking website or a general education website. You might have to be reasonably intelligent, though perhaps without necessarily needing to be a university graduate. I mean, would we want the people who are looking out for us to have above the level of average education or below the average level of education? Or is it more important to think about some other, perhaps more objective measure, for example, their IQ? Perhaps even more usefully than some measure of education or of how well we do on tests, what we would actually want is people who are open 
to thinking in new ways, open to challenging their assumptions, open to engaging constructively with others. Perhaps something which we might refer to as a growth mindset. Perhaps you'd have to be non-specialist, or perhaps rather specialisations don't necessarily count either for or against being on the list. What about life experience? Would we want people who know nothing of how the world works? Would it be best to have people towards the end of their career, for example people over 50, so that they have nothing to gain in terms of future employment after their period of service? Or would we want much younger people? Would a 20-year-old have as much to offer? Well, let me put it out there. I think perhaps people towards the end of their career, who have nothing to gain in terms of future employment, perhaps those are the sorts of people with greater life experience. But I'm interested to hear what you might think. We'd want to have a social cross-section of sex, of ethnicity, of age, of region, different parts of the country. And even with all of this, once selected, there'd have to be some pretty detailed scrutiny training. There'd have to be some training on thinking skills. Some of this might be the same sort of initial training which members of a citizens' assembly might be given. Being aware of our own thinking processes. Not rushing to assumptions. Learning how to speak up but also learning how to listen to others, not just agreeing with the loudest or strongest voice in the room. Respecting everyone's contribution and everyone's thinking, even ideas which might seem to be wrong, at least initially. Now that can all help to clarify our own thoughts, because taking the time to explore why such and such seems wrong can be a useful way of checking why we think that this other thing is right. So lots of thinking skills training. Perhaps some specific scrutiny training, scrutinising legislation, looking at the aims, objectives and the merits of legislation, at least in theory, looking at the practical implications, looking at the application and the implementation, how a new law would actually work in practice, how it would be brought into practice. Perhaps scrutinising the executive, looking at the aims and objectives that the executive has, calling ministers to account. Also looking at post-legislative scrutiny, thinking about how it all worked out after the fact, thinking about public payback. Now, would citizen scrutiny be initiating legislation? Uh, Probably not. This has to come from the policy-making executive. That's the fundamental thing about why we elect a government in the first place. However, a functioning legislative scrutiny system could be very helpful in assisting the executive in drafting legislation, helping to avoid wasted efforts by ensuring that even first drafts were better thought through. What's the cost of all this going to be? Well, if it costs, just take a figure, if it costs £200,000 per year for the salary, accommodation, research budget and meeting costs for each of the members of the scrutiny committees, that's £1 million per year per scrutiny committee if we assume five members per committee. How many scrutiny committees would there be? Well, there are currently 62 select committees. However, not all of these would need a new scrutiny team, and they're not all full-time. Each of the new scrutiny representatives could probably sit on more than one committee. Perhaps we'd need 25 volunteers in total, say £5 million in the first year. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? It would be to you or to me, But in the context of government spending, government budgets, and most importantly, spending government money on the right things, 
£5 million is chicken feed. So how would you pay for all of this? Well, for a start, by avoiding any one of the blunders of our governments. If you want to see more about that, listen to our episode on the blunders of our governments. With more than one currently occurring per parliament, that means that the citizen scrutiny process would only have to pick up one of them per decade to more than pay its way. Secondly, the improvement in the performance of our elected representatives in the other roles in which they represent us. Well, that would probably also justify the cost of the system in itself. You might say, isn't that what the civil service is supposed to do? Well, actually, no. Civil servants are supposed to do what the elected government tells them to do. They're able to give advice, of course, but they're not there to represent us, the electorate. They're there to make happen what our elected representatives decide that they want to happen. And on top of this, there's another reason why civil servants shouldn't be involved in such a system. It is their career, at least for senior civil servants who work in Whitehall, directly involved in government departments, perhaps not for the sort of civil servant who's a teacher or a social worker. On the jury model of having nothing to gain, senior Whitehall civil servants would actually have to be deliberately excluded from taking part. So if we did this, what would be the implications for elected MPs? Well, it's possible we wouldn't need so many of them. But that might be jumping ahead of ourselves. Would we still need to pay for 650 MPs? Perhaps only half that number might be efficient. On the other hand, that all depends on whether our MPs can usefully use the time which would be freed up for them by a selected scrutiny process. It might well be that local representation and calling the executive to account It might well be that local representation and calling the executive to account in the House of Commons would still be keeping them more than busy. Anyway, this is a completely additional issue, one which might simply become necessary to sort out once the selected, not elected, legislative scrutiny system was working properly. In the meantime, there's still an issue of how business in the Houses of Parliament would and should be conducted. There's still a very valuable role for MPs in fulfilling this role. These selected, not elected, legislative scrutiny committees, the citizen scrutiny, that would only be looking at legislation and policy. There's still the day-to-day business of government to discuss, to report on and to hold to account. Elected MPs will be in a position to do the work in the debating chamber of the Houses of Parliament, as well as being much more available as local representatives. What would the relative status of legislative scrutiny and the Houses of Parliament be? Well, perhaps a new balance would have to be found between the status of legislative scrutiny and the work of the debating chamber of the Houses of Parliament. In theory, at present, the legislative scrutiny, which MPs don't actually do, informs the ways in which they can call the government to account in the Houses of Parliament. Now, as we've already discussed in previous episodes, this doesn't happen anything like as well as it could do. But if the MPs are not required to be involved in legislative scrutiny, committee work, how can they be expected to be sufficiently well informed to call the government to account in the Houses of Parliament? Well, as far as possible, this won't be necessary. Good legislative scrutiny will already have called the government to account, as well as having consulted fully, built consensus and considered the implications, both intended and unintended, and the practical implementation requirements. 
or at the very least good legislative scrutiny, will have highlighted the areas where government needs to be called to account in the Houses of Parliament, and our MPs can then do that, properly informed by the output of the new citizen scrutiny teams. In addition, the inadequate scrutiny process at the moment means that MPs are currently not particularly well informed anyway. Legislation is forced through quickly, without full consideration, without building consensus, and without adequately thinking through the implications, both intended and unintended, and the implementation requirements. MPs participating in such a process are either completely ignorant or are effectively conspirators in the production of poor legislation, or have failed to take the opportunity to challenge and to improve. In any of these three scenarios, they're either inadequately informed, and so are merely incompetent, or are adequately informed but fail to apply that knowledge, and so are guilty by association. So, would removing MPs from being required to be involved in legislative scrutiny make the situation worse? It's hard to see how it would be worse. And as well as an independent legislative scrutiny process producing better legislation, the output from the legislative scrutiny process, a summary, as well as better legislation, could be used by MPs to inform their work in the Houses of Parliament. So although MPs won't be required to be involved in the legislative scrutiny, their interactions with the government can still be informed by the process and the outputs of legislative scrutiny. This frees MPs to be better participants in the executive or better able to provide oversight of the day-to-day operation of the executive, as well as to be better local representatives. How do we test this? Could we test it in a way which wasn't actually going to distract it? What would be the risk of running a test? How would we set up such a test? Well, you could have a parallel service model running alongside existing select committees, perhaps using reality TV, perhaps a four-week test camp of volunteers broadcast over ten or more weeks. Imagine something like The Apprentice, the challenges and the tasks, but without the idiots, mixed with something like Strictly Come Dancing, with the learning and development and achievement, but without the glitter. Start with the logic. Why are we doing this? Then the selection process. Who's in? Who's not? And why? Then the training. Who's good at what? Who can't hack it? Who gets dropped? Look at scrutiny. Look at constructive challenge, holding ministers to account. Looking at how they operate. Looking at challenges, successes, failures. Since a competitive element appears to be a requirement of making this sort of format of TV engaging for the audience, then you might have a few subgroups within the test camp of volunteers. There could be comparisons made between a subgroup of undergraduate students aged 20 and a group of 55-year-old professional people who graduated 35 years earlier but who bring greater life experience, for example. Or between a group of female volunteers and a group of male volunteers and a mixed group. The process of artificially arranging competition might actually serve as informative research and learning about what the best mix of participants is likely to be, as well as, for a test process, making interesting TV. We could compare, with elected MPs, the quality of the scrutiny of legislation, focusing on particularly one bill, for example, and look at the pitfalls of foreseen consequences between a team of randomly selected representatives. We could compare our test group with elected MPs, the quality of the ways in which they are able to call the executive to account, 
And through this whole process, we could refine the selection and the training. What would the implications be immediately for the current system? Well, not much, really. In a worst-case scenario, nothing changes. There's no improvement in the scrutiny process, and things would continue. No better, but also no worse than before. Even in this worst-case scenario, we still have an improved level of understanding across the population at large, or at least those who watch the programme, and some MPs who are trying to do better, because no one likes to be shown up. A best-case scenario? We might have better insight and input into creating better legislation, and a result of better independent legislative scrutiny. And we might have better insight and information for the MPs, who are then using that information through the existing House of Commons processes. And we might have more time for MPs to allocate to their other responsibilities, and so therefore a better service from our MPs in those other areas. What about in the longer term? If such a model is proved to have benefits to offer over the existing system, then perhaps a separate tranche of representatives to a legislative citizen scrutiny process could become part of the political process in the UK. The extra investment, the cost of operating the system, would be more than recovered if just one of the blunders of our governments was avoided per parliament, perhaps per decade. Yes, just one per decade. Perhaps fewer than that. That's how costly the current blunders are. So that's it. A system which uses informed, balanced, objective, engaged people, citizens, to call our politicians to account, to check that they're doing their job. It's not a party political thing, but it is a political thing. It's making sure that the process of scrutinising what our elected government and ministers is doing is neutral, constructive and independent as a process. The only objective for citizen scrutiny would be to make sure that the rest of the country is getting the best possible outcomes, not about scoring party political points. As we said at the start, removing the logical inconsistency of political parties being the ones who check up on themselves. Now, next time. Next time, we're going to move on to look at whether there are even more ways in which we can involve citizens, not just political party politicians, in some of the important politics in our world to get things to work a bit better. In particular, we're going to look at an idea called citizen government. This is an idea which we could actually trace back to the very birth of democracy, to ancient Greece, and to the way in which government was conducted in Athens over 2,000 years ago. With citizens' assemblies, we have citizens, not elected politicians who are too worried about their chances of getting re-elected, trying to work out how to best address the real challenges of our world, the wicked issues. With citizen scrutiny, we have citizens, not elected politicians, who are too worried about being good party members and advancing their own careers. We have citizens checking up on what our government and ministers are doing. Well, perhaps we could take an even larger step and learn from the ancient Athenians. Perhaps we could have a look at whether some, or even all, of the functions of our government could be performed by citizens. Perhaps we don't even need elected representatives at all. Now, I have to say in advance that I'm not sure that we could do without electing representatives at all. But it's an important idea to explore sensibly, to see what the advantages might be, and to be clear about what the disadvantages and risks might be. So, that's what we'll look at next time. 
citizen government. If you'd like to have a look at the transcripts of the podcast, including links to all our sources and references, please go to www.talktogether.info and follow the links to the podcast from there. And of course, if you'd like to contact us, not least if you'd like to share any ideas which you have about how we could make things better, or if there are any areas of how politics is supposed to work, but why you can see that it's not working, or anything you'd like to draw to our attention, please email us at any time on info at talktogether.info. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you'll take the time to tell your friends. And perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it just also really makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Yeah.